Welcome to the Little Red Podcast, which brings you China from beyond the Beijing Beltway. I'm Grant Smith from the ANU's Department of Pacific Affairs, and I'm joined by my co-host, Louisa Lin, former China correspondent for the BBC and NPR, now with the Centre for Advancing Journalism at Melbourne University. We're on air thanks to support from the Australian Centre on China and the World. This month, we're focusing on China's economy, which after decades of boom seems to be heading back to earth with a thud. Beijing's just revised down the size of its economy. GDP growth is expected to be below 4% in the fourth quarter of 2021. That's if you can believe any of the numbers. Now, the last time we tackled China's economy, our guest, Tim Murray, called it the biggest Ponzi scheme the world has ever seen. This month, we're joined by his colleague, Anne Stevenson-Yang, the co-founder of J Capital Research. But first, we'll talk to Andy Rothman from Matthews Asia. Our two guests have what you might call the opposite views on China's economy, and we're starting with the positive side. Um, Andy, the big news out of China has been the default of Evergrande, the huge property developer. And um, many people kind of see this as a sign of impending doom for the Chinese economy. But you've argued in a rather contrarian way that the government actually caused Evergrande's collapse and it was a deliberate act. Um, Why would they do that? That's right. This was a deliberate housekeeping effort. The government has been concerned for a number of years that some of the property developers in China are poorly run and have been taking too many risks. So they've been making an effort to clean that up. And so they really pushed Evergrande over the edge deliberately. But let's also put this in context. It's not a Lehman moment, which some people have been calling it, because Evergrande's not a financial institution. And while it may have been the biggest property developer in China, it's not that big. Last year, Evergrande accounted for about 4.5% of new home sales on a square meter basis in China. And that's a sign of how fragmented the industry is. The 100 biggest developers, for example, only account for about half of the sales. So this is a controlled house cleaning and is not likely to blow up anything. Also important to remember that this is not the first time the Chinese government has tried to clean house like this. They did something similar back into 2014. A lot of people thought the end was coming, and by 2015 or so, the housing market was off to the races again. And I think that that's where we're going to be by next summer. But surely there are other property companies in a similar situation as Evergrande? I mean, aren't its problems systemic rather than just an individual case? There are others. But again, because the industry is so fragmented, most of these developers, they're just not that big. So we've already seen some problems at Kaisa. They're about, last year, were about half a percent of new home sales. We've seen problems at Shermau. Um, that was about 1%. So none of these on their own are are systemic, again, because it's such a fragmented business. So they're kind of going to clean house by having better quality developers take over the businesses and make sure that families that have already paid for flats that are still under construction get those flats completed and, and turned over. I would argue that on a systemic basis, the property market in China is actually really healthy. Let's think about what went wrong here in the United States about a decade ago, right? In 2006, a little bit before the housing crisis here, the median cash down payment for a new home in the United States, the median 
was 2% of the purchase price, right? So just a, a small fall in prices put people underwater. In China, by regulation, the minimum cash down payment if you're buying a home to live in is 20%, but banks that we talk to are requiring a minimum of 25% cash down if you're going to live in it. If you're an investor, which is a really small part of the market, you have to put 50 or 60% cash down. On top of that, banks in China keep mortgages on their balance sheets until maturity, unlike in the United States. So they have a lot of incentive to do good due diligence. There's plain vanilla lending like we used to have here decades ago, no balloon option arms and no doc loans and ninja loans. So I actually think that the property market is one of the more systemically sound parts of the Chinese economy. But looking at it, say, from a household perspective, if you look at the amount of debt that the average household is is taking on in order to uh, sort of service these mortgages, even in the case of this is beyond speculation, doesn't that pose some sort of systemic risk when you have that level of personal debt and also debt in the underwriters in these local government finance vehicles that are basically predicated on land and housing prices continuing to go up? Well, let's look at the, the household part of that question. It is a problem because it means that households that have purchased homes recently have used up a lot of their savings and they don't have a lot of cash to spend on other things. So that's a drag on growth. But I think that's different than a systemic risk like we had in the United States, where it was the opposite, where households didn't put a lot of cash down. But then when prices went down, they were underwater. They didn't want to service their mortgage because Chinese households are putting so much cash down, the risk of defaults is really, really low. We just know from global experience, including in Hong Kong, that even if prices go down, if you've got a lot of cash in your home, that's the one thing that you really don't want to default on. So yeah, it is it is a drag on growth, but growth in the consumer part of the economy is still pretty good. It's the fastest growing and largest part of the economy. So I think that's a, a reasonable trade-off. The other thing to remember is that at this point, at least, house prices have been going up pretty well. So over the last five years, the average house price in China is up about 30%. So it's kind of like when I bought my first home many years ago, I kind of went bankrupt. I used up all my savings. I borrowed from my parents, my wife's parents. Um, we couldn't afford to do anything for a few years, but our income started slowly going up, very slowly, because we were both working in the government. Um, house prices started inching up. So after a while, we came through that and we were more comfortable. And a lot of Chinese families are steadily moving into that position as well. But is there an argument that the entire property sector is uh, massively overvalued in China, that it needs to come down? I'm not sure I understand how people come to that conclusion. I think that we have to recognize what the big property problem is in China. It's not a financial system problem for the reasons I discussed. It's not a bubble because in my view, bubbles are all about leverage. I mean, that's what happened in the U.S. housing crisis, and we don't have that in, in China. What China has is the same problem that we have in the San Francisco Bay Area where I live now, where that New York has, that London has, that I think Sydney has, which is an affordability problem. That for people who can afford to buy a new home in China or in New York, it's okay. But a large share, probably the majority of the population is priced out of the market. But that, to me, is a social and a political problem rather than a risk of 
collapse of the Chinese economy. So that's probably a good segue to talk about common prosperity because you have these social and political um, risks that it looks like there's an attempt to take on in, a, in, a, in, in an economic redistribution way. I mean, do you think this is kind of a rollback of economic reform or is it a fairly sensi- sensible move to, uh, to change the Chinese economy? Uh, the latter. Uh, so let's let, that's, that's a great topic to talk about because I think the, the themes around common prosperity are going to be some of the most important drivers of economic policy over the next decade or more to come. And I really think that if we look at what the Chinese leadership is saying and is doing, and if we also think about what makes any sense for them to do, it's really about trying to address the same problems that you all are worried about in Australia, that we're worried about in the U.S., that almost every country is worried about. Income inequality, inequality of wealth, unequal access to health care and education, and anti-competitive practices by larger firms that are holding back competitors. And in most of our countries, we've been talking about this stuff for years, but political paralysis hasn't let us do anything. I mean, the minimum wage, the federal minimum wage in the United States hasn't gone up in over a decade. Um, So I think that they're focused on a lot of issues that all of us are focused on. They've just been able to act on it. Now, that also means that they make mistakes because they can act pretty quickly because it's a one-party autocratic system. So there's no opposition party to force hearings and compromise and really talk it through. There's no free press to force transparency. So I call it a bug in China's Leninist system that they overdo everything that they do. And we saw with the regulatory crackdown over the last six months or so that they overdid a lot of things like the property market that we've been talking about, like the power shortages that were created by overdoing, you know, admirable goals to try and reduce uh, emissions and improve energy efficiency in heavy industry and reduce coal mine accidents. But they overdid it. The good thing, though, is that most of the time the government is happy to acknowledge that they've overdone things and then course correct. So we saw that pretty quickly with power, for example. No one's talking about power shortages just a a few months later, right? On property, they really cracked down in May of this year by going to banks and telling them basically to stop issuing mortgages. And then in July, the property market froze up. But in November, mortgage lending from Chinese banks, which is directed by the state, really ramped back up again. And I think by probably the second quarter of next year, we're going to see the property market healthy again because they've done a course correction. So we'll have to wait and see. But I think that as long as they continue to fix those bugs, they're probably doing things that we wish we could be doing in our countries. And I really like your, your comparison of, of what she has been saying and what Biden has been saying. And basically, they're saying the same thing, but they're going about it with quite different methods. Um, I mean, I guess my reservation would be, I don't know if I fully trust the county government that I used to work for in rural Anhui when common prosperity lands on the county party secretary's desk as his number one priority in his annual evaluation. I'm just worried about what he's going to do. Oh, for sure. That's a good thing to be worried about. But what we've also seen is that while those kinds of problems are widespread, they tend to get fixed because, as you know, the Communist Party leadership in Beijing is a very top-down organization. So they can reach down into the county level 
after they get complaints from people that, hey, this common prosperity thing isn't common enough in my county. Um, and so there is, over time, accountability at the local level. It's far from perfect, but in many ways, it's better than in the kind of more fragmented system that, that we have here in, in the United States. You know, we've got massive disparities in opportunity here. I mean, Joe Biden talking about how the zip code you live in in the United States shouldn't determine whether you get access to good education or not. So yeah, it, it is a problem, and I don't want to dismiss or really even downplay these things. But if we look at how successful China has been in improving opportunities across much of China, you know, it's, some of this stuff's actually been reasonably successful. Now, they've got a long way to go. Um, you know, Scott Rosell, for example, at Stanford has done some really great research, his last book, on the disparities in uh, education and, and just getting eyeglasses for students in the poorest counties in China. Those are big issues that they really need to focus on more. I, I wanted to ask your view of the crackdown on tech giants, whether that also was a case of overreach, because it, that's been another big headline in the last few months. We've seen the suspension of um, Alibaba's Ant Financial's IPO, the apparent house arrest of Jack Ma, anti-monopoly fines on tech companies, the delisting of Chinese tech companies from the New York Stock Exchange. How do you explain that? Do you think the government has gone too far to try and rein that sector in? Yes, but I would divide this up into two ways that they've gone too far. The first one, which is more in the headlines, and when you talk about the, you know, the famous cases, uh, and I'm going to, since I, I, I work for a, a mutual fund company that trades in different companies, I'm going to avoid mentioning any company names so my compliance guys don't get mad at me. I think that these cases like for Jack Ma, this was not about a tech company. This was about him crossing a red line that the Communist Party laid out in the late 1990s when they allowed private companies to get big. They looked across to the Soviet Union or Russia and the experiences there and said to Chinese entrepreneurs, feel free to get rich, but do not believe that getting rich and famous entitles you to criticize or challenge the Communist Party on governance issues. And from the very beginning in the 1990s, you might remember Louisa, the, the famous uh, flower salesman up in, uh, in Dongbei, up in Northeast China, uh, Yang Bin, I think was his name, who got put in jail for, for doing that kind of thing. And periodically that would happen. And Jack Ma was really good at navigating this until about a year and a half ago. Um, and so I don't think this was about the company. I think it was about reminding wealthy entrepreneurs that they have to listen to the government uh, not challenge the government on governance issues. And I think the DD issue was similar. Um, it seems that regulators asked them to delay their IPO and they, they said, no, that, we're going to go ahead. So that part of it, I think, has been a constant in China. The other part of it is related to the common prosperity themes that we were talking about, where they thought that a lot of the big tech companies in China were abusing their power to deploy anti-competitive practices that were keeping down smaller rising competitors. It's the same kind of debate we're having here about Amazon and Google and Facebook, except they acted. Now, in fact, the fines and things like that weren't all that big. 
they weren't threatening to the companies. Now, did they overdo it and really frighten investors in the marketplace, especially foreign investors? For sure. Again, a bug in, in the system. But now I think they have signaled that the worst of the regulatory crackdown is over and things are going to stabilize now. I think the rules are more clear to the companies and to investors. And if this plays out smartly, if it plays out smartly, this is, I think, going to lead to a better operating environment for the companies and for the Chinese economy. So a question for you about two very different narratives and whether there's any reality to, to either of them. So on the US side, there's been a lot of talk of economic decoupling from China. And on the Chinese side, of course, we've had this discourse around dual circulation. From where you're sitting, I mean, is this process actually happening from either side? There's no data in, to indicate that I'm aware of that decoupling is underway, despite the talk of a trade war by the last American president and the tariffs, the share of total U.S. imports that comes from China has only gone down marginally by about three percentage points. And in fact, China's share of global exports has hit an all-time historical record. You know, so I would say, in effect, no, there's no decoupling going on. China, in the decade prior to COVID, every year on average, contributed about a third of global economic growth. That's a larger share of global growth than from the US, Europe, and Japan combined. And once COVID gets sorted, it's going to go back to that. So we need to find a way to work with China to, I hate to use this word because it's it's scary in the United States, we need to engage with China. I really am in the camp that believes that engagement has been quite successful over the last several decades, both in terms of encouraging, incentivizing the Chinese government to behave better abroad. And also, as both of you are aware from your time in China, it has resulted in such a dramatic improvement in the standard of living and the quality of life for the vast majority of Chinese people, plus much more personal freedom than they had when all of us first started working in China. Now, it's far from perfect, but what's the best way to further incentivize the Chinese government to provide those benefits to the rest of the Chinese population that hasn't received them yet? Is it threatening them with a big stick or further engaging and providing more incentives while also creating some guardrails and making sure that our values are well understood? I'm going to put you on the spot and ask you what your predictions are for the year ahead. What kind of GDP growth are we likely to see? I mean, you say when COVID is over, they might be able to get things back. But we're also seeing the sort of zero COVID policies, the COVID suppression policies are really serving as a massive drag on the Chinese economy. Some people are even talking about possibility of negative GDP growth. What is your prediction? Okay, a lot of questions there. So Let's start by talking about zero COVID. I understand why China is doing this, because if they had the same percentage of cases and percentage of hospitalizations that we have in our countries, or at least in the US and the UK, their hospital system would be overwhelmed. But we can also see that the impact on the Chinese economy has not been severe. Uh, the industrial part's doing well. Exports have been booming for COVID-related reasons. And the consumer part except for the things that require people to gather in confined spaces like travel and entertainment, everything else like purchases of food and tobacco and booze and 
appliances is doing quite well. And we, and we can see how this plays out both on a macro level and in terms of how we invest in different companies. So I think people who are predicting the imminent collapse of the Chinese economy, my first question would be, for how many years have you been predicting the imminent collapse of the Chinese economy? And what leads you to believe that this time you're going to be right? Because I just don't see that. In fact, I think that next year is going to be a really good year for the Chinese economy. Now, I'm not going to give you a GDP forecast because for like a decade now, I have stopped doing that. It's the least accurate statistic in the Chinese data book. And it's also, from an investor's perspective, the least important statistic. You know, if I told you that last year GDP growth was going to be five or six, that wouldn't change the way that you might invest your retirement money in Chinese stocks. But there is a clear easing cycle underway in China right now. It's just beginning. Easing in terms of monetary policy, easing in terms of fiscal policy, and maybe most importantly, regulatory policy. The crackdown is it, the worst of the crackdown on the regulatory side is over. Uh, I talked about how property is starting to come back again. So I think that from a macro perspective, next year, forget about the GDP numbers. Everything's a little bit distorted because of COVID and base effects. But I think it's going to be a pretty healthy economy. Also, as you know, we have the 20th Party Congress coming up in the fall. Xi Jinping is uh, almost certainly going to be given a third five-year term. He's going to want everything to look good. So the emphasis next year is on preserving strong growth, whereas the emphasis in 2021 has been more fixing problems, and that has led to somewhat slower growth as a result of that. Now, there's one big headwind pushing back against that, and that's U.S.-China relations. And here I'm quite pessimistic. I was in Washington again last month, and you know, every time I go there, I come away more pessimistic. I think U.S.-China relations are in pretty dismal shape and are likely to get increasingly dismal. Um, for the foreseeable future. Now, the good part is that that doesn't have a huge impact on the Chinese economy, which is a domestic demand, consumer-driven story. And as investors, we're looking at Chinese companies selling goods and services to Chinese consumers. And we're not investing in the Chinese economy or the Chinese market. We only need a couple of hundred companies out of the 5,000 listed Chinese companies that we can trust by doing a lot of due diligence. So the headwind is really about sentiment, especially for American investors who are being listening to their politicians every day saying China is an existential threat to America, which, of course, I disagree with. I think China just wants to be left alone. Andy Rothman, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me on. Great to talk to both of you. That was Andy Rothman from Matthews Asia. Now, for a completely different take, we're joined by Anne Stevenson Yang, the founding director of J Capital Research. And since we talked to Tim Murray, your co-founder back in 2018, a fair bit has happened in the Chinese economy. But where you stand on the health of the economy seems to come back to the question of debt and whether you think that China can manage it. I mean, do you think the Chinese economy is still the biggest Ponzi scheme that the world has ever seen? Or has the party succeeded in its quest to de-risk the economy? 
No, it's totally the biggest Ponzi scheme, but um, people tend to look at the Chinese economy and think, well, you know, they can keep on pumping money in, they can keep on rolling over this debt, they can keep the excitement over these asset gains going. The problem is that that the excitement is all internal and, and it's the Chinese people who really are losing out from all of this. And they will continue to. And and I think the end game here is that asset values have to come down by, you know, 75%. And the average Chinese person who thinks that he or she is worth, you know, $500,000, a million dollars in U.S. dollar terms is actually going to find out that those assets that that he has are, are useless and worthless. But I mean, how far will the Chinese government go to stop that from happening? Because a lot of its legitimacy rests on the wealth or at least the perceived wealth of its citizens? Uh, Sort of. I think that the key concern of the Chinese government is to keep the banking system rolling and to have no uh, visible external crisis. And I think that they will manage to do that. I I think two things. Number one, I think that the Chinese government um, under its current leadership seems to be kind of myopic and unaware of exactly how much stimulus would be needed to keep this whole thing going. But secondly, I think that the idea that that popular support is important to the Chinese government is is very overrated. So I guess if it's overrated, the term that always gets used is de-risking. And and that's been a major goal of the government um, overall. I mean, have they had any success in this effort to de-risk the economy? I think that uh, there's a huge portion of so-called de-risking that's really about information flow. And I think that in that regard, the Chinese uh, party, from its own point of view, has been very successful. So, you know, for example, if real estate prices would be cut in half if uh, if markets were allowed to trade openly, then you just don't allow them to trade. And if uh, prices fall by 60% in this city, you just don't allow that city to hear the news. And for that reason, people will continue to transact. So I think it, it's the same with bank runs after all. You know, if if you don't know that your bank is not going to uh, to make good on your deposits, then you don't go to claim the deposits. So you keep the bank run, run from happening. I wanted to ask you about this change in the economic model, this idea of common prosperity, which we keep hearing so much about, and, you know, on the surface sounds so very Marxist. I know some people have been comparing it as, in economic terms, as big a move as Deng's Southern Tour of 1992, which kicked off the uh, sort of period of economic reform. I mean, do you think it's really such a big deal? And I know that you have a sort of particular um, take on common prosperity. I do. I mean, to to begin with, um, the the general idea that there that wealth should be better spread around, there shouldn't be such ostentatious billionaires, and the average person should not aspire to become, you know, Jack Ma. That has been uh, it been in play since the beginning of the Hu Jintao administration. And when you know, after all, he he's the one. Even at the end of Jiang Zemin, but but particularly at the beginning of the Hu Jintao administration started to talk about um, lowering expectations, you know, having a 
the reasonably prosperous society, instead of having a Jaguar, you have uh, a BYD in your garage. Instead of having a villa, you have a nice 150 square meter apartment and so on and so forth. So, you know, the Chinese government has been trying to lower the expectations of the average Chinese person. And that is the overall umbrella idea behind uh, common prosperity. But if you look at the mechanics of common prosperity as they've been announced so far, it's really pretty peculiar. It looks to me like uh, more than anything else, a bypass of the uh, bureaucratic administration in order to drive funds through alternate channels. And, you know, I, I don't mean to be too cynical about this sort of thing, but, you know, there's a great, great book that I rely on heavily called The uh, Dictator's Handbook. And The Dictator's Handbook describes uh, political systems in terms of, you know, how they work, regardless of whether they're called socialist or communist or capitalist or whatever, you know, democratic or whatever. Um, and it points out that as systems age, the need for uh, patronage payments increases, and you have to you have to continue the flow of patronage payments to uh, the people who are critical supporters of yours and who keep you in office. I think that that's what's going on with common prosperity. It's just really uh, more than anything else. It's a mechanism for keeping money flowing to the people who have their hands out. So, I mean, when you say that. You know, you're making it sound like a big kind of pork barrel, basically, to keep big business happy. And what kind of evidence is there for that? Oh, it's not really big business. It's uh, it's big bureaucrats. So, uh, I mean, what evidence is there of it? There have been at least 10 private companies that have, quote unquote, volunteered to make large donations to common prosperity. Uh, Alibaba put in 15.5 billion U.S. dollars. JD put in, what, about 4 billion U.S. dollars, Meituan, lots and lots of private companies. And where is the money going exactly? It's going to things like uh, training programs for public officials in IT. What does that mean? It means paying public officials, right? So that may be a good idea, it may be a bad idea, but let's be clear about it. It's paying public officials. It's going to uh, quote unquote charities whose purposes are very unclear. So, so the chairman of Meituan donated a whole lot of shares to a brand new charity that was uh, named for him with the Wangxing charity. And about half of the shares were cashed out on the first day, making, I forget how much it was, it might have been around 3 billion Hong Kong dollars. Uh, and that, you know, where did that money go? And what is that charity? Nobody really knows. You know, why can't we just tax those people and have their tax, uh, the tax revenues go into the public system? Clearly, it's more important to have the money go into these alternative channels. That's interesting, though, that... Um... If this is the case, that there seems to be a need to buy off bureaucrats, what does that say about uh, how the system is working right now? Well, I don't think that there's anything different about that. It's just that, you know, as systems get older, as China's system has has matured and aged, the the number of people who are critical to uh, supporting the system grows smaller, but they need to have more and more remuneration for doing that because what they're doing becomes more and more risky. It's really no different in any other aging political system. I'm not, uh, I'm not saying this is only China. I think that you can see the signs of this all over the United States, but that's not my focus here. 
I had a conversation with someone, I, I can't say where he was from because it was Chatham House Rules, but he, he came from a part of the world that's seen their share of dictators. And he said, in, in our region, people don't usually push for nationalism until the economy is going bad. Um, and he took that as his data point to sort of be, be doubtful about the state of the Chinese economy. I mean, in the dictator's handbook terms or in your terms, do you think that's where it's coming from? I mean, when the economy is spinning less remunerative for the people in charge, then of course you have to uh, increase the payout from the existing institutions. I think that there's also a lot of concern about the size and power that the uh, private companies like Alibaba and uh, and JD and Ant Financial have reached since the the global financial crisis. I mean, whoever imagined that Ant Financial would become more glorious and more powerful than, you know, uh, Chalco or something like that. I think nobody ever, I, I don't think Deng Xiaoping ever envisioned that. And so um, there's a there's a general feeling that, you know, we've got to rein that in, particularly after the example of Donald Trump achieving the pinnacle of world power, uh, apparently by virtue of having a lot of money. Um, and then you had, you know, immediately after he took over, you had Jack Ma go meet with him before Xi Jinping met, met with him and promise, you know, make a lot of extravagant promises to the United States, like, you know, a million going to create a million jobs and la la la, and then go meet with uh, uh, Bibi Netanyahu, if I remember correctly. That's Benjamin Netanyahu, the Prime Minister of Israel. Exactly, yes. So this was all sort of in side channels um, and not in the formal channels of diplomacy. And that really does not please the Chinese leaders. It, it really should worry everybody, but particularly in China, it's concerning. I mean, the type of thing that you're describing, doesn't that in the long term end up cutting off your nose to spite your face? But I mean, it doesn't exactly advertise... China as a good um, destination for foreign investment and for foreign companies if this kind of thing is happening to Chinese companies. The, your question presupposes the idea that foreign investment is is absolutely critical to China. In the very early days of Deng Xiaoping, uh, incoming foreign investment was very, very important. Um, and then uh, the Chinese developed or, or discovered portfolio investment and found that it was a lot less troublesome to raise money on public markets. And so it turned to that. And now direct foreign investment is um, of a lot less less interest to the Chinese government. Um, but regardless of, uh, of, of how much capital the, the, the party really wants, the real critical issue is that the party remain in charge. And if everything else has to be jettisoned, so be it. I want to get down a bit into the weeds of how the Chinese economy works, because you've been researching the Chinese economy on the ground for, uh, for decades now and going out, you know, to some pretty remote places to investigate companies. I mean, what, what's the craziest fraud you've ever come across and, and how did you uncover it? Oh, gosh, <laughs> they're just they're just all over. I mean, I guess that I started um, I started looking at frauds. I was because I was off looking for good companies to invest in in the agricultural sector. 
And one of the stops on my way was a company that was making uh, so-called organic fertilizer. Um, it was in Xi'an. And I go to this company, I've made an appointment with the chairman or somebody or other, and I go to this company and it's got a different company name on the, uh, on the door. And so I ask the receptionist and she hasn't heard of this listed company. So I ask somebody else uh, who's sent out to meet me and he says, oh yeah, yeah, that's our listed company, but this is our real company. So, you know, I, I, meet, I meet with the chairman and he tells me something really entirely different from what this company's story is. I, I eventually visit the factory and they have like this tiny, tiny, I can't even describe how insignificant this assembly line is um, with, you know, a guy shoveling, shoveling coal into a little bucket and the bucket, you know, creating, and it just is not anywhere near the scale that they're claiming. And so so that kind of set me off on, on deciding, you know, I ought to take a look at these frauds because this was like, I don't know, a two billion two billion U.S. dollar company listed in New York. Um, I believe it's still listed. The chairman has been uh, is dead now. I believe he's been assassinated. So the rumor goes. But at any rate, there are a whole bunch of those. There was another one in Dalian where. Um, I visited the company and I met the chairman and the chairman's as assistant. And uh, as soon as I got back to Beijing, the company announced a really big contract and the share price rose. So I called the chairman on his cell phone and I said, um, so you, you didn't tell me about this contract. And he said, oh, you know, between you and me, we're just saying that <laughs> this is the chairman of the company, you know. <laughs> there's there's another company that where where I met with the um you know the founder of the company and you know they had announced really spectacular growth and he said oh yeah we didn't grow that much <laughs> and you know I told him I was a stock analyst and I was just you know <laughs> that I was coming to report on this company but he didn't really care uh, he said, yeah, we didn't really grow that much. I said, well then how'd you report that? He said, oh well we have cash flow we can report anything we want. <laughs> Meaning, if money is churning through the accounts, then you can just kind of like say it's revenue rather than somebody else's money that they're lending you. Anyway, there, there are, I would say, dozens of this sort of company, hundreds even. Can I tell you one? I mean, there's a lot of weird debt stories about Inter-Mongolia. And there was one company that was um, that this guy, this particular guy, this particular developer in, in, in Inter-Mongolia knew and this guy had borrowed money on the black market and couldn't pay it back. And so he took his father, his father had passed away, right? He took his father's body and he placed it in his car and he exploded his car so that the, the body would be identified as his. The <laughs> DNA would you know, be, be shown as his. And then he fled to Hainan, but apparently he was caught by the loan sharks. Anyway, sorry. There's lots of, you know, weird murder and mayhem stories that uh, that people never hear about China because they think it's such a normal place. Now you um you predicted the Evergrande collapse way earlier than other people. I think it was as early as 2011. I mean, what what do you think is coming next? Can you name other property developers or conglomerates that you think could fall next? Yeah, I mean, the thing about about the property sector in China and the reason why, 
you know, I never would have suggested to uh, to asset managers back in, in 2013 that they actually short Evergrande is that it, it's a sector that, that rises and, and falls together, right? Because it's so subject to, to government regulation and government policy. So, you know, for example, you have um, companies all over China that uh, that have, you know, vast inventory to sell, but they're not allowed to sell more than, you know, a certain amount that they can put into their, their pre-sales permit. And if they were to sell all that inventory altogether, then the price abruptly would drop, right? Because there are way too many apartments. Um, and the governments don't, don't want it to drop. So there are governments all over China that have put floors on the price of, of property that's uh, that, that you can register. So if you want to pay more than a you know five or ten percent discount, you're out of luck. You can't do that. So this is something that that you know that that the governments all over China manage. And then you have these you know these zombie companies. Well, if I can't sell all my my inventory and I can't drive my cash flow, what am I going to do? I don't. I can't pay my people. So you know you'll refinance the loans or you'll tell people you know sell off your secondary assets. You know, I I can't tell you how many how many property companies I've been to that end up being just like three people sitting in a dark building um, where saying, you know, well, I can't sell what I have. I can't pay off my loans because then I have less cash and I haven't paid off all my loans. And, um, and, and I can't just close the company or else I don't have my, you know, 2 billion renminbi in assets. So I can just, all I have to do is, you know, all I can do is sit here until the market comes back. That kind of thing is everywhere in China. But do you think there's other other sectors that look particularly dodgy to you at the moment? Um, don't say all of them. Sectors that look dodgy. Um, I mean, I, I tell you, Louisa, the 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 thing that's dodgy is when Chinese companies. I mean, there are tons and tons of good Chinese companies with great ideas, obviously, all over the economy, and there are tons of companies that uh, that do extremely well. the The problem is is this aspirational listing in order to raise cash on the basis that maybe someday you're going to make money. And then uh, these companies very often get way ahead of themselves and make a lot of promises, borrow money from friends and family and government. And then they get sewed into this growth story because if they if they announce what's really happening in the company, then their share price is going to drop. They're going to disappoint their, their uh, underwriters and all of the people who've supported them, including the local government. So they just decide to smooth a quarter and then smooth the next quarter. And then they get trapped in this cycle of just having to keep on on saying what it is. This is why Alibaba, for example, now has more mobile active users than cell phones in China, right? So, you know, and it and and the mobile uh, or the the regular active uh, accounts, there are more of those active buyers uh, on on regular online circuits in Alibaba than um, than adults in China. You know, it's become an absurd thing. I think they claim 250 million uh, buyers overseas on their e-commerce platforms. They get to this point where you, it, it becomes untenable. And as a consequence, Alibaba, for example, in the most recent quarter, just stopped announcing their mobile active users because if they were going to post growth, 
they would have more cell phones than exist in the world. But if they're going to post um, in decline, then their stock's going to decline. So I guess they just decided not to say. You know, Alibaba is already claiming something like, um, you know, on their on the last uh, what do they call it? Singles Day, shopping day that they reported uh, the the turnover for, which was back in 2019. I think they had like two months of Walmart global turnover in one day. You know, you're getting to a level of absurdity where you simply can't announce it anymore. Else, people, even asset managers who who you know take it takes a lot to make them laugh, uh, they're going to you know laugh. When you describe that kind of fiction that's going on, it really harks back to the sort of fictional grain harvests in in the Great Leap Forward. That kind of massaging of figures. Uh, but transposed to global capitalism, if these Chinese companies start going down, what what kind of effect do you think it's going to have? That's a little bit hard to say, but you you do you know there's been a lot of what you might call uh, uh, financial or or fiscal sin um, that's been. Uh, been been committed since the global financial crisis in in 2009 and the net effect of these um of, of these machinations has been an accumulation of about uh about 35 trillion US dollars uh controlled by various Chinese entities uh that's held overseas in in various tax havens like like Caymans and BVI and so on and so forth now this money, this is just an enormous chunk of money. And at some point, somebody's going to start selling that, right? And at some point, as you start to sell those assets, they're not going to look like they have the value that uh, that that they're claimed to have, $35 trillion. So that means a couple of things. One could be a, uh, a decline in asset value uh, for a lot of these Chinese assets, you know, the things belonging to Alibaba and Tencent and some of the other large conglomerates and some of the large Chinese banks. It could mean a, uh, a, a kind of a slow bleed depreciation of the U.S. dollar. It's a little bit surprising that that hasn't happened over these years of, uh, of, of great expansion of the dollar. But then, you know, a lot of other economies have expanded their currencies, too. What ultimately has to happen is that the value of all of these assets has to drop. So exactly how that happens, it can happen along a, a number of different paths. But the value has to drop because there isn't enough, you know, equivalent value in the world to trade for it. And right at the beginning, you said the value has to drop by 75%. I mean, do you think the Chinese government is willing to see that happen? Well, of course, nobody's willing to see that happen. And 75% is just a, a number plucked out of uh, at, at, at random. But, you know, if you remember the, the Japanese uh, crisis in the 1990s, a lot of people compare the Chinese financial system to Japan's because of the assumption that China will continue to uh, refinance and refinance and refinance and just go into an extremely low growth cycle uh, for you know twenty years as Japan has, but people do tend to forget that that the value of Japanese assets being stocks and real estate assets and so forth did drop by over seventy five percent so uh, Japan took a very big hit before it went into that low growth cycle, and i 'm afraid that that 's what will happen with China as well so initially we 'll see 
you know, delisting of some of these Chinese mammoth companies, and just a general retraction in um, in, in the the Chinese uh, economy and sort of retraction into itself. So a return to the the pre-Dungist economy. Wow, that's a pretty serious prediction. I mean, so what would that mean, say, for people in Australia or America, say, five, ten years from now? What what will that? What will the effect be on their economies? Well, Australia is much more immediately affected because Australia depends so much on China as a purchaser of its commodities. So, you know, Australia has had a lot of distortions in its own economy, largely because of the uh, the Chinese construction boom. Exactly how that works out, it's, you know, the, the prices of commodities in Australia are already coming down. Australia's real estate bubble has got to pop. Um, there, you know, there's a lot of nastiness that one could predict for for Australia. And the same is true of other commodity-dependent economies like like Brazil and and Canada. For the United States, it's a little bit of a more complicated uh, story because we're a much more, we have a more diversified relationship with China. I think that um, the U.S. listed companies that do big business in China, their stock values have got to come down an awful lot. Chinese consumption, of course, of things that the U.S. makes like soybeans is going to decline a lot. And the ultimate hit is going to be the depreciation of the renminbi, which will send, of course, deflation across the world. Happy times for Walmart and yeah, for right. uh, and Monsanto <laughs> yeah. and everyone. <laughs> and Stevenson Yang, thanks for joining us. Oh, thanks so much. Been a pleasure. I'm Grant Smith, and you've been listening to the Little Red Podcast, bringing you China from beyond the Beijing Beltway. Many thanks to our guests and my co-host, Louisa Lin. Editing is by Andy Hazel, background research by Wing Kwong, our music is by Susie Wilkins, and our cartoons and gifts come courtesy of Seb Danta. Bye for now.